This uh, passage of Scripture here today really begins to open up a whole new contour of what Jesus is, what he has done, the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you um, recall, chapter 1 and chapter 2 is all about angelology and how that affects the Son of God. If you would, chapter 1, again, was all about Jesus being higher than the angels. That is, that we saw Jesus exalted and on his throne. We saw Jesus reigning and in righteousness at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in chapter 2, we saw Jesus being uh, brought down to a level under the phrase lower than angels, which is just a remarkable way of describing the humanity of Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ took upon himself human flesh, that he dwelt among us. And so this passage here, verses 17 to 18, it's really the focus. Last week we dealt with verses 14 to 16. This week I want to look at verses 17 to 18 and what I've entitled the mercy of our great high priest, the mercy of our great high priest. You know, Millions of dollars are spent every year, probably every day, for people who are seeking to be understood. People go to doctors, they go to psychiatrists, they go to therapists, they go to spiritists, they go to healers, they go to priests, they go to ministers, all in an effort oftentimes, so that someone would understand the burden of their heart, so that someone would understand their human need and their human limitations. Isn't it amazing that Jesus condescended to come down not just to save us? That would have been enough. But Jesus comes down not only to save us, not only to redeem us, but then to empathize with us, to become, as the author of Hebrews will go on to say, a sympathetic high priest one who can understand the needs of his people. Just remarkable, remarkable. People go to all these different sources to find that sympathy. They go to all these different wells to find that security, that sense of belonging, that sense of someone understands where I'm at. We read books. We try to find ourselves in the stories of the books. We love to hear people's testimonies because we can find little pieces of identification and identify with others. But I tell you what, brothers and sisters, what the gospel also means to us is not only that there we find our salvation, but there we find our sympathetic high priest, our sympathetic Savior. And it is on the basis of this all-sufficient grace of God that he is able to sympathize with his people. And the way that he does this, of course, is through the incarnation. And so I want to point out four things from this these two verses, 17 and 18. Four things that are important for us to understand the reasons why Jesus came to identify with us. Number one, it was so that he would be merciful to us. It's so that he would be merciful to us. And we see this primarily in this transcendent or this condescending rather phrase that he was like his 
brethren. You see that? Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That's a remarkable and perplexing statement. That he had to be made like us in everything. That's remarkable. He's going to go on to explain, of course, what that means. I think to understand the condescension of Jesus, his coming down to our level. I want you to think upon the phrase that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Romans 8, verse 3 says that God sent his son, listen to this phrase, in the likeness of of sinful flesh. But the author there, of course, Paul, careful to insert the word likeness because it would have been unthinkable heresy for him to have said in sinful flesh (laughs) because he did not come in sinful flesh. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so what does flesh refer to in that passage in Romans 8.3? It doesn't refer to your body. It doesn't refer to your sin nature. It It refers to humanity. Humanity. All flesh is like grass, right? That is talking about our human nature. And that is how Jesus came. Jesus came and dwelt among us. And he came among sinful flesh, sinful humanity. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Jesus did not come to dwell among a glorified, sinless people. He came to dwell among heathens, sinners, among prostitutes, tax collectors, liars, thieves, adulterers, murderers. He was identified as well. It's one of the parts of Isaiah 53 that makes him the suffering servant as he was numbered with transgressors. And that is to say that Jesus came and identified with sinful humanity as if he was part of this sinful world. He was not. Jesus is the prototypical alien who comes from another world comes into our world in order to redeem that world, in order to redeem that world. But he came, nevertheless. He he was made like us in everything. I think I want to stress today to you the humanity of Christ. Because had you sat with Jesus while he was on earth, and you sat down with him, let's say in one of these chairs here, and he sat with you and talked with you, he would have been fully man talking to you, able to identify with you to every extent except for sin. He knew what it meant to be born, brothers and sisters. He knew what it meant to have to grow in wisdom and in stature. He knew what it meant to have to grow in strength, according to Luke 2.40. To be weak, he knew what it was to be hungry, he knew what it was to be thirsty, and he understood what it meant to feel pain. Jesus was fully man. He needed to know what it meant to be troubled in his heart, troubled in his spirit, sorrowful so that he wept, heartbroken. He knew he understood what it meant to be filled with righteous indignation. You oftentimes look at the injustice of what's going on in this world, in your life, 
and things that you've seen. And then think of Jesus there at the temple, cleansing the temple, making a cord, of, making a whip out of cords and driving out thieves out of God's house. He understood righteous indignation. He understood what it meant to be patient, suffering under trial. He understood, in other words, the full range of human emotion, yet without sin. But above all, above all, Jesus knew what it meant to suffer. He knew what it meant to suffer. As a matter of fact, he came for that very purpose, that he would suffer. Look with me in Luke uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, please. I just want to point this out to you. He knew what it meant to suffer because he was ordained to this end. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. You know this passage of Scripture. This is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's 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 opening up their eyes to see the truth of his own ministry. And he says, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? That is, to die, to be crucified, to be buried, but then to rise again from the grave, to rise again from the grave. The sheer fact that Jesus was made like us means that he is a merciful high priest. He is able to legitimately identify with us. Think of that the next time that you're lonely. Think of that the next time you think no one understands your plight. No one understands your circumstance. No one understands your psychological and emotional condition at any given moment of your life and realize that there is one that understands you perfectly. Better, I would say, that you understand yourself. (laughs) That's remarkable, is it not? We do not suffer alone. What a glorious truth. If you're in Christ. If you're in Christ. He could have left man without that. You know what? Jesus could have left man just to die in his sin, let alone come to redeem him, come to sympathize with him. He could have left us in the dark. He didn't have to come and bring us revelation. He didn't have to come and dwell among us. He didn't have to come to identify with us. He could have revealed himself solely as a judge. The good news would have consisted of All of God's righteousness and none of God's mercy. It could have been that Jesus came as a lion and not a lamb. He could have come in all of his glory and simply incinerated the world. And he would have been absolutely holy, righteous, and just to do that. But as the author of the Psalms, as the psalmist says, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute his iniquity. That's the good news. See, it would have been righteous news, but it would not have been good news for you and I. It would have been holy news, but it would not have been good news for you and I, for Jesus to come solely as a judge and not as a sympathetic high priest who lays down his life for his people. So mercy first understood through the fact that Jesus identifies with us, becomes one of us, and understands what it means to suffer and to be tempted. But there is another expression of this, another aspect of understanding the condescension of Christ, his coming down, identifying with man, and that is that he came to represent us 
to God. Now here we come into the priestly role of Christ. This is so important, so critical, because look at what it says. It doesn't just say that he came to be one of us, right? But look at the purpose, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest, watch this, in the things pertaining to God. It's an amazing phrase, in the things pertaining to God. What in the world is that referring to? What that is referring to, brothers and sisters, the things pertaining to God refers to the things that a priest would do in the service of God. Religious things, ritualistic things, ceremonial things, the things that God demands, the things that God requires. He had to be this kind of priest that would minister in God's house and represent his people in the things pertaining to God. Jesus' priestly faithfulness, therefore, is rooted in the concept of the priesthood. Let me read to you an astounding verse from 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do, uh, uh, who will do according to what is in my heart. This is Yahweh speaking. And according to what is in my soul, I will, I will build him an enduring house and he will walk before my anointed always. You see, that verse was spoken in response to the corruption of the priest Eli, or Eli's sons and the corruption that they brought upon the people. And God vows to raise up a high priest so faithful, so righteous, that he will do all that is in God's heart and all that is in God's soul. Think about that. A priest that would represent people so perfectly that he would do all that was in God's soul. You go on reading about the priesthood, you read Exodus 28, and there it describes the beautification of the priest. But one of the things that it describes is it describes that at the bottom of the robe of the priest, you were to fasten all of these bells onto the priestly robe. Why? So that if the priest would go in ministering unto the Lord, you've heard the story, and the bells would be ringing as he's ministering to the priest. And if those bells were to stop ringing, it would be an indication that the priest was unfaithful and that he had dropped dead because of his sin. And the people would also fasten a rope around his leg so that they can drag him out of God's tent. But there is coming a priest, Samuel says, who is so faithful that he does everything that is in the heart of God and in the soul of God. You know when God is talking about his soul, He's taking us in. He's taking us into his very bosom. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. It was not the Zadokian priesthood. That is, it is not Zadok and his sons that fulfill the faithfulness of this priesthood. It is Jesus Christ, the one to whom all priesthoods point. And that is exactly what Hebrews is going to make very clear, especially in chapter 7. This is all 
of course, speaking of our need of a great mediator, a a go-between, someone that will go between God and us. And in order for him to be infinitely successful, he has to be infinitely faithful. Faithful. It's not just that Jesus dies for us, but he lives for us in perfect obedience. He does all that the Father requires. And this makes me think of John chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus says, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. He always did this. Now, how do we understand, first of all, this priestly work of Christ? Well, it begins with sacrifice. Look at the, look at the text again. Because not only does he condescend brothers and sisters to us in being merciful to us by identifying with us, that is, with our humanity, and not only is he, does he condescend to us in that he represents us to God, but he also condescends to us in that he makes propitiation for us. So three things there. And the third one is this to make propitiation for us. You see that there, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Another purpose clause here, to make propitiation for the sins of the people of the people. So this is this is really the soul of the gospel right here. This is what makes the gospel good news. The word propitiation. Again, this is the word that every pastor wants all of the members of the church to know the word, memorize the word, know what it means, be able to explain it to yourself because it is your life. Because without propitiation, we are doomed. Without propitiation, we are yet in our sins. Without propitiation, God is still angry with us. Without propitiation, we are going to be overwhelmed by our sins. We are going to be overwhelmed by our sins. But this is what propitiation, this is what propitiation makes reality to us. And I'm referring to Psalm 103. Uh, You may want to turn there, Psalm 103, but just to see the benefits of propitiation. How does propitiation practically affect me today? This is how. Sing this song over yourself if you want to understand what does propitiation do for me. Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. (laughs) That's what propitiation does. It makes God favorably disposed to you so that he does not deal with you according to your sins. That is very, very, very good news for very, very, very bad people. (laughs) Nor does he reward us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his propitiation, we could sing, So great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. And we could interpret that as to say, through propitiation. Just as father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those that fear him. For he himself knows our frame. Look at this, verse 14. He knows our frame, and he is mindful that we are dust. Job 
reminded God and he said, remember that I am breath. That's it. Just a flicker. It's just a, we're just a flicker. That's it. And the psalmist and Job, they remind God and say, God, remember that we are dust, that we're just a breath. We're wind. We're a vapor, to use James's word. We are a vapor. But Jesus is not only there as our priest, making sacrifice, serving in God's house, but he offers himself. He not only makes propitiation, but he is the propitiation for the sins of the people. When we think of the forgiveness of sins, we immediately think about our personal subjective experience. And that is true, but I'd remind you what the text says. That it says here, he is a merciful high priest. So in other words, what the text is doing is it is providing attributes of Jesus Christ. You see, because the gospel is not just good news because you experience something from it, but it is good news because of what Jesus has done. In other words, in the Bible, the gospel is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? The gospel about Jesus Christ. What does that mean, the gospel about Jesus Christ? It's about what Jesus Christ did. That's what he did. He made propitiation. It's all about what he has done, and that's why the author of Hebrews is lavishing attributes, not on us, but on him. He is merciful. He is faithful because the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done for sinners. Hallelujah. Now, the term propitiation here has two possible meanings, right? You know this. Either the word propitiation can carry the idea that our sin has been removed, and that's the concept of expiation, or it has the, the idea of our sin, or the wrath of God being removed. And that certainly is a valid definition in this text and in all other texts, so that both are really implied. But I think maybe slightly here the focus is on removing the sin of the people. The sin of the people. Now, just going back to the Old Testament for a second. In the Old Testament, the work of the priest was twofold. Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 28. That's right. Dust it off. Turn to the Old Testament. <laughs> to Exodus 28. I want to show you just two aspects here of the priestly work of the priest. Okay, And this has to do with the garments of the priest. Now, we know from verse 2, we know from verse 2 that the priest was to be decked out in certain robes. He was, to be, he was to be dressed in a certain way. And then listen to this remarkable description of a priest. It says in verse 2, Exodus 28, verse 2, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. Listen, for glory and for beauty. Why? Why? Can't he just pair, wear a pair of jeans? Why does he need to be decked out? And furthermore, why is the symbolism about glory and beauty? Because at this part of his garment, the priest is representing God to the people. And so God, glorious, 
beautiful beyond belief, a representation of his presence is coming down to the people. And the priest is embodying that. He was there to shine as if God himself and his presence was coming with him. But it doesn't end there. The priest served a dual, fat, a dual purpose. Look at verse 9. 28 verse 9. Because it goes on to say that you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. As a jeweler engraves the signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in the filigree settings of gold. That's like ribbons of gold. You shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of memorial for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for a memorial. So what is that about? So that when the priest came to God and he came with all these glimmering stones on the ephod, all of these bright, beautiful jewelry all over him, it wasn't so that he could look gaudy. <laughs> it was because it was, all, it was all injected with meaning. And God gave the people symbols he gave them signs. He gave them memorials. And so when the priest came into the presence of God, guess who he had on his chest? The people. And so he was literally symbolic of the priest saying, I am bringing your people before you. And why? And, and, and why can the priest do this? Because he himself was the mediator. He was the mediator. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that when Samuel said there in 1 Samuel 2, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Keel and Dillich in their Old Testament critical commentary said, this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Because of course, all of this priesthood language doesn't end until Christ ends it. Right? Until his once for all sacrifice for the people. Until his mediation. Until he could bring his people before God. Until he would bring God to the people. I mean, he is the perfect embodiment of all of this. And we could just go on and on and on. He sanctifies us. That's what, that's what the ephod represented. That's the beautifying of the people of God, and that is exactly what Jesus, Jesus, remarkably, if you go back to Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, it also describes him in a similar fashion, remarkably. Remember, after he suffers death, it says he is crowned with glory and honor, exactly the type of uh, uh, description given to us of the priests in Exodus. Jesus fulfills this beautifully in his own life, his own life, and the author will go on to later develop this perfectly. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 just to see how the author is going to flesh this out. Boy, I tell you what, we are going to be knee deep in the priesthood of Jesus Christ for some time. And um, 
It's going to be glorious so that we can understand the new and living way that's been opened to us. Look at this, Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That's where the priest would go, through the veil. That is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Who is the house of God? The house of God is the people of God. So just like Moses was faithful in his house, that old covenant people, Jesus is faithful in his house, his new covenant people. It's just remarkable. Jesus is our high priest and the only priest left for mankind. That's why it says in in Hebrews chapter 6 that if they turn away... It is impossible to renew them to repentance because there is no repentance left if you leave the new covenant. That's why Jesus, the only priest left, is decked in the robes of his own moral righteousness based on his own perfect obedience since he does what God's heart requires, since he does all that is in God's soul As our righteous high priest, he takes upon himself the names of his people. He bears the curse on their behalf, making an atoning sacrifice for us, resulting in our justification, resulting in our reconciliation, connecting us back to God where we were separated, we were scattered, we were without God in the world, without hope. And Jesus repairs all of that. And we should also talk here for a moment about the extent of the atonement. We talked about this in uh, Sunday school, so it should be easy for me, right, to preach about this right about now. But let's talk about the extent of the atonement. Notice what it says. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, what people is he talking about? Because so much of this stuff in Hebrews is borrowed from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament... The sins of the people always and only referred to Israel. I got news for you. The high priest did not go into the holy of all and make atonement for the Philistines or for the Amalekites or for the Jebusites or for the, you know, all the sites. He didn't make atonement for anyone other than his people. And so when it says here that Jesus made propitiation for the people, articular, meaning specific people, I believe that what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's he's showing us the typological fulfillment of Israel, that Israel now is envisioned as newly constituted in Jesus Christ, and therefore Jesus Christ makes atonement for them, those that are constituted in him, in Christ, or else... If the author of Hebrews is saying he made propitiation for the people, that is ancient Israel, well then brothers and sisters, if you are not a Jew here today, you have no hope because propitiation was not for you. But of course, this is not what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He's saying the typological fulfillment of the people is realized in his children, in his brethren. Go back to verse 10. Verse 10, kind of a parallel passage here. Verse 10 of Hebrews 2. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. That's his kin. Those are his brethren. 
Many sons to glory to perfect the author of salvation through sufferings. Exact parallel to what we're talking about here. The people he represents is the sons that he brings to glory. The people that he represents are the children, the brethren. Verse 11, the brethren that he calls. I'm not ashamed to be called your brethren. And why is he not ashamed to be called the brethren? Because we are all in the same congregation together. We're in church with Jesus. <laughs> we're, in, we're in Jesus' congregation. And that's, what, that, that's why he can describe us as the children that God has given me. So all of God's children given to Jesus Christ are represented right here in the atonement. In the atonement. And, of course, last of all, it is not only, it is not only that Jesus is a faithful and merciful high priest because he has mercy on us by becoming a man, dwelling among us, not only because he has mercy upon us because he represents us perfectly to God and also because he makes propitiation for us. But lastly, in that verse, because he sympathizes with us. This is just remarkable, almost unbelievable to behold. Look at verse 18. He makes propitiation for the sin of the people for, that's a big, big conjunction there, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's incredible. That's remarkable. It tells us several things. The logic of all this tells us several things. And one of the things that it's showing us here is why is Jesus qualified to be my priest? Why is Jesus qualified to be my high priest? Now notice he is not only called merciful brethren, going back to verse 17, Jesus is not just merciful, but he is also faithful. And the faithfulness of Christ, the fidelity of Christ, means that Jesus was perfectly obedient. It means that Jesus was a faithful father. He passed the test. That's what it means. He passed the test. He was perfectly faithful, faithful for us. And this final qualification, therefore, stresses, the, stresses that Jesus is uniquely qualified to represent us as his priest. And again, verse, uh, verse 14, just skip up a little bit further, sort of the same sort of parallel uh, passage here. He was made like his brethren in all things, verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same. That's a parallel. That's, a, that's kind of going side by side. He was made like his brethren in all things. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. So he identifies totally with us. To share in flesh and blood, in other words, is almost for the author of Hebrews, code for human suffering and for living as a human being in this world. Because the phrase later goes on to def define all of that as through death. Through death. Through his life and his death. That explains the purpose of Jesus' humanity. I hope that you're tracking along with me. The truth is that both mercy and faithfulness of Jesus, the mercy and faithfulness of Jesus, is why he is qualified to represent us. Why he is qualified 
to sympathize with us. It says, he was tempted in that which he suffered. This is a remarkable phrase. He himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Now, the Greek language here is really remarkable, and it is a little bit perplexing. But let me tell you what it's saying. Not only does the text make it clear that Jesus suffered in close connection to his being tempted, but it also speaks to the fact that this was a once-for-all settled issue, but it also speaks of the ongoing relevance of the suffering of Christ. The fact that Jesus suffered for us and remained faithful means that he is able to, that he is qualified, if you would, to be our helpers or our helper to help those that are being tempted. This is the way that John Brown in his Geneva commentary put it. Listen to this. He says, Who is not struck with astonishment and delight at observing in the plan of salvation such an intimate knowledge of all the particularities of our nature? So in other words, in other words, he knows us all together. And such a benevolent use made of this intimate knowledge in securing man, not only the great substantial blessings of salvation. So in other words, even though he knows us all together, he still secures for us all of the blessings of salvation. But even more than that, he says even more than that, being conferred on him, that is us, the way best fitted to soothe and to comfort him in the midst of the remaining evils of the present state. Remarkable is that what the atoning work of Jesus did, what the priestly role of Jesus is this. Not only does he know you all together, he knows the sin, just like the priest of Israel, he knew the sins of the people. He knew all the particularities of the people. And he went in and he made sacrifice. He rendered them uh, uh, propitiated for. He removed the anger of God, the wrath of God. And then he also sympathizes with the people. And that is what the book of Hebrews is saying, is not only atonement, but also empathy. Also his ability to help us, to understand us. Brothers and sisters, that is what we need to understand. We do not suffer alone. We are not in this by ourselves. Jesus knows what it means to be in a sinful world, bombarded by temptation and oppression and evil. I mean, think of the evil of the Roman Empire that's evil. Think of the Corinthian culture of the Apostle Paul. That's evil. And Jesus knows exactly what it means to live in the context of the present evil state that we find ourselves in. He is therefore called our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, please. Let's read this together because it is such a magnanimous and precious passage of scripture for we do not have a high priest verse 15 chapter 4 verse 15 who cannot sympathize with our weakness oh i'm so glad it says that aren't you weak i'm weak aren't you weak we're all weak you don't esteem the sympathy of jesus christ is because you do not know how weak you are but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The only qualification. Now, this is a very paradoxical thing because people, people, I think, they, 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 
they inquire about this text to their own detriment. We sort of empty the text of its power by asking the question, well, was it really a real temptation if he did not sin? And how can really sympathize with me if he did not sin? Because I sin! (laughs) But I think the counter-argument to that is just as compelling and more. Somehow, and I'll let you work this out over dinner tonight, somehow it is in the very fact that Jesus did not sin that uniquely qualifies him to be able to minister to people who do sin because Jesus uniquely, alone, by himself, has been tempted by sin and never sinned. So in other words, he felt the full brunt of the temptation and he remained faithful to the very end. He was able to fully digest the temptation. When we sin, we don't fully digest the temptation. We give in to it. Jesus felt the full extent of temptation, and he did not yield. He did not fall. He did not fail. He did not falter. He remained perfectly faithful, and therefore he understands the degrees to which we are tempted. He knows the weakness inherent in our own humanity. And he's able to to see us when we're tempted, to see us when we're in a weakened state, to say, I know what you're going through. I know how that feels. I know it's hard. Get up. Keep going. Keep fighting. Because he endured under such a great temptation, Scripture tells us. He did never return evil for evil. When he was reviled, he never reproached in return. And then it says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In other words, what's so confident about that? It's that when you come to the throne of grace, what are you going to find? You're not just going to find a judge sitting up there with his scepter looking down your nose as to say, you know, boy, you're, you're a joke. <laughs> he should do that to us. And we are a joke. But what do we find when we walk into the throne of grace? We find not an expression of judgment coming from the judge, the righteous judge, but we find an expression of someone who is empathizing with us, looking at us as his dear children, understanding us fully and having great sympathy and mercy upon us. That is so glorious. So that we may receive mercy and find help in time of... He doesn't remove his mercy. He doesn't say, no, 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 you've blown it. This is the final time. Mercy is gone. Mercy never ends in the throne of grace. I want to leave us with two admonitions. You ready? The first one is behold. What do we do in response to all of this? Number one, we behold. Number two, we believe. And for that, we need a sneak preview into chapter three. (laughs) So let's look at chapter three first. 
in light of this great high priest, sympathetic, made perfect atonement for your sin and for mine, understands your frailty, your weakness. What do you do? Look. That's what you do. Look at him. Understand him. See him. Meditate on him. Focus on him. Therefore, brethren, look at verse 13, how powerful that is. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Here it is. Here's, here's the imperative. Consider Jesus. Isn't that great? Consider Jesus, the apostle, high priest of our confession. He is an apostle. Why? Because he was sent. That's what apostle means one who is sent he was sent to us on a rescue mission to rescue us right and he is our high priest the high priest of our confession means we confess him as our priest and so behold him think on him meditate on him if 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 the easiest way to put this is when he says consider what we consider is his roles we consider his offices. We consider what he has done. So consider, brethren, draw strength. I could say that. By considering, he is telling us, draw strength from him as you consider him. Verse 12, and second. Not just behold him, consider him, meditate on him, think about him, but number two, Believe, and this is a big one if you're studying the book of Hebrews. He admonishes us against unbelief with a warning. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that's a warning, that there not be in any of you an evil heart, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That is... Uh, you could almost sum up the whole book of Hebrews with that verse right there. What's the book of Hebrews about? That verse right there. Take care, brethren. Take care that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So in light of the priestly role of Christ, in light of his sacrifice, in light of his sympathy and empathy for us, what do we do? We believe. Stick it out. See, the book of Hebrews is written to a people, remember, that are being bombarded with reasons to leave the Christian faith, period. Whether it's persecution, which we're going to see in chapter 10, whether it's false teachers and false brethren who are already leaving, and we're going to see that in chapter 6, but there are reasons, pressure, there are, or your own temptation, your own sin, your own folly, your own weakness that will pressure you to leave your confession and to fall away from the living God, what the book of Hebrews is saying, you need endurance. You need to endure through all of that. Brothers and sisters, Jesus sees your suffering. He sees your weakness. He sees all of that. And this is the thing, is that your high priest will see to it that your suffering does not go to waste. He will redeem it. He will use it. The question is, are we going to allow, are we going to allow our suffering to go to waste? If we, if we do, 
then we will suffer for it. But if we do not, we will be blessed. We will be blessed for endurance, blessed for perseverance. And the priestly work of Christ has everything to do with that. Because before you are tempted to walk away, the question you need to ask yourself is, did Jesus make propitiation for my sin? And if he did, then there's no more wrath. And if he did, then that means God has thrown my sin as far as the east is from the west. He forgets all about it. He sees it no more. But if Jesus is not your high priest, then the terrible warning of Hebrews is this. You have nowhere else to go. You cannot return to the old, sacrif the old sacrificial system. You can't go back to the world. You'll find no redemption there. The only thing you're going to find there is a certain expectation of judgment and indignation. That's it. You are just hastening and you are just fattening yourself up for the slaughter. That's why the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus. Father, Lord, at every season I pray for us that we would, that we would not allow any other vision to cloud our thinking that nothing would become more prominent in our eyes, not our sins, not our failures, not our depression, not our bodily affliction, not our trials, nothing that may come swarming around us, threatening to overthrow us. Father, I pray that our vision would be singular, that it would be all-consuming, all an all-consuming vision of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Help us, Lord, to build our life on this rock that cannot be moved, cannot be shaken. In Jesus' name, amen.